may do that one day. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through the 21st chapter, verse 4, which is found on page 880 of your pew Bibles. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How How then can he be his son? When all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for a show, make lengthy and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her pop but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. This is the word of God for the people of God. Now my inheritance now. 
This earlier, so I'm just going to do it now. If you thought you were going to get out of this, you were mistaken. This past week, we had some new members join our church. Uh, if you were a part of that new, Father, we come into your presence this morning as you have called us. Lord, may we be faithful with your word. May you guide us and may you teach us by the power of your spirit that you have sent upon us. May it guide us in our everyday lives. May it show us our sin. May it remind us of our need of Jesus. May it guide us to love you with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we pray for the vastness of your creation. We pray for your church as it goes and conquers sin in the lives of everyone who call upon you by faith. Bless those who go. Expand your church. Reveal to darkened hearts and minds the truth of the gospel. That salvation rests in Christ alone. Lord, we pray for you to bless our country. Bless our leader, President Trump. May you guide him. May he be a righteous ruler who loves justice and seeks mercy. We pray for the community to which you have called us. In Fayette County and Shelby County. Lord, may we be your kingdom agents in our workplaces, in our schools, having dominion where you have called us where you've given us gifts to bless those around us. Lord, we pray for fellow churches like Hickory With Presbyterian Church. May you be with Doug as he proclaims the gospel this morning. May you be with that church and be with those people. We pray for the public schools of Fayette County. Bless its leaders and its students. 
for you are true truth. And they need you. Father, we pray for Kimberly Abarathy's uncle who's been in the hospital. Care for him and tend to him. We pray for Yvonne's parents. We pray for Yvette White's back. She recovers. We thank you for a successful surgery of Brooke Dawkins. Continue to be with her and heal her. Lord, be with Jim Bennington and Billy Griggs. And Doug Hay and Jim Haas. Lord, please bring relief to Billy Hickey. We rejoice in the new members at Christ Presbyterian Church. For you are at work amongst your people. Lord, bless our new playground. May it be a blessing to the children and to the families of this church. But may it also be a blessing to our community. May it be a place where conversations are started. That we can share the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus. In Christ's name. We pray that the prayer you taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So yours the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You find out a lot about a person by asking them questions. The most popular questions that you'll hear are, what do you do? Where are you from? Where do you live? What school do you go to? These are the go-to questions of striking up any conversation. But if you really want to get to know somebody, the questions need to get deeper. When I worked at Best Buy, very dark time in my life, we often played a game of asking questions. The goal was to ask open-ended questions, something that can't be answered with a yes or a no, because closed-ended questions did just that. They ended conversations. If you want to get to know something about someone, you must ask them questions. You can't go up to someone at Best Buy and say, can I help you? Because regardless if they need help or not, they say no, and you walk away. But you ask questions like, what brought you in today? And what was just great is when they said nothing, because you knew they were lying, because they were in Best Buy. And I would just stand there in silence and wait. The awkwardness loomed. You're supposed to ask people questions if you want to get to know them. Once you get to know people, your questions change. You can ask questions such as, 
What are you afraid of? Who inspires you? What is a skill you'd like to learn? And then once you get to know people and you begin to respect them, you ask other types of questions. What makes you, you? How would you handle this situation? How did you make it through your hard times? We all know someone who likes to ask questions. These are not people that just ask questions simply to ask them, but who truly want to know answers. Parents, who is your child that asks questions? Students, who are those in your classrooms that ask real questions? They don't just want to hear the sound of their voice, but they're actually asking questions. If you don't fall under those two categories of having children or being a student, who is a sibling or a relative or a minister who likes to ask questions? As we look back through Luke's gospel, we see that people constantly came to Jesus with questions. Luke 5, who can forgive sins but God? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And Luke is a storyteller, right? He's been painting this picture for us. And this is what a great storyteller does. He draws us into the story so we are memorized by its characters. Yet throughout this gospel, over and over and over, again and again and again, in each encounter with sinners, with tax collectors, with Samaritans, with Pharisees, Sadducees, disciples and apostles, Luke writes all of these questions for, so we can hear from Jesus. But the ultimate question is the question that Jesus asked back in Luke 9. Who do you say that I am? And we are forced to ask this question. Who is Jesus? I've asked this question over again, and as long as I'm behind this pulpit, I will continue to ask you this question. Who is Jesus? You see, people ask Jesus questions so that they would just get answers. But almost every time, Jesus would not let them go without a parable, without a question of his own. Without a question of his own Jesus made people contemplate. Be introspective. He made them examine themselves in light of the answers that he gave. Something that I would encourage you to do is try to read through Luke's gospel in one sitting. Or for some of you, many sittings. Just a few, though. And see how Luke tells us this story about Jesus. And see how people respond. Do they respond to Jesus properly or improperly? Do they respond to Jesus by faith 
or with contempt. As John has been preaching through this book over three years, it is sometimes really hard to see how the full story goes together. Sometimes we take just piece by piece and we miss the connections. And sometimes we forget, if, even if we might not know, what comes next. But Luke is telling us a story, and the story introduces us to Jesus. He tells us about the life and the work, and ultimately the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert, that's where we're headed. Yet this gospel does not just ask you the question, who is Jesus? It forces us to answer the question, who do we say that he is? And within the walls of this building, as God's people sitting under the preaching of God's word, we have to ask ourselves this question again. Who is Jesus? The Gospels don't leave us standing on the corner wondering. It tells us. He's the anointed one. The one whom the government will be placed upon his shoulders. The wonderful counselor. The mighty God. The prince of peace. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Messiah that the Old Testament was expecting. The God-man who came to redeem his people. He is our redeemer, our reconciler, our substitute. He is our champion and our sacrifice. He is the second Adam. He is our king. Once we answer that question, then we are forced to ask another question. Who are we? It is hard for us to believe in Jesus. We are not inclined by our own thoughts or the desires of our own hearts to understand the magnitude and the majesty of our King. Our hearts are not easily persuaded because our hearts don't want Jesus to be King. Our hearts want us to be King. Our sin has blinded the desires of our hearts and our sin turns us inward looking for a savior rather than looking for Jesus. This passage this morning reveals that our heart's desire is filled with selfishness. It's filled with a desire for our own praises rather than the praise of Jesus that in our hearts, our self-autonomous rule and reign of our lives is what we want. But yet what this text demands is that we proclaim Christ as king. This passage reveals that Jesus is our king, and this passage demands two things, that we yield to his authority and that we yearn for his desires. We must yield to his authority. Verses 41 through 44. Have you ever asked a question and got a blank stare in return? 
Here we see Jesus doing that exact thing. He asks a question, and he gets a deer in the headlights. The Sadducees have just asked him a theological question concerning leveret marriage. If a family were to follow the law, and a woman married a man and he died, then she was supposed to wed his brother. And if she did this seven times in the resurrection, to whom should she be married? Jesus asked them a question, and he is left with silence. You see, the basis of their question was to understand how Jesus interpreted the law. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. He asks them a question to see how do they interpret the prophets. He asks them the question, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? He quotes Psalm 110, our Old Testament reading this morning. And then he states this, David thus calls him Lord in verse 44. And he asks again, how is he his son? Crickets. No response. Jesus is a teacher. He's teaching in a temple. And we've seen over the past week, people are asking him questions. Three times in Luke 20 alone, people are asking him questions. And here he asks the religious leader a question. How do you interpret the Psalms? To paraphrase Jesus' question, if David, who is to believe the author of Psalm 110, says to the Lord, which is God, in the Hebrew it's the word for Yahweh, if God said to my Lord, which is translated the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, then David who is in a patriarchal system, is calling his son Lord. To understand this question, we must understand the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, as we've seen over the past few weeks, Israel has been expecting a Messiah, the Anointed One, to deliver them from bondage. And what they thought was the bondage of the Roman Empire. Yet, as we have seen, Israel's expectation of the Messiah has been misdirected by their leaders. They have only been expecting a liberation from Rome. Yet, what Jesus has been doing in proclaiming the kingdom is that he's been telling them their expectation is a false expectation now. Turn with me in your Bibles, to Luke 13. In your pew Bible, it's just page 873. It's just a few pages back. Luke 13, verses 18 through 21. What is, the king, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made Nests in its branches. I preached on the servant. I'm sure you remember this, right? And again, he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, 
that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Turn a few page o- pages over to Luke 17, page 876. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Turn over one more page to Luke 19.11. Luke 19.11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. What was their expectation? Not that the kingdom of God would be like a mustard seed. They wanted their king to appear on a horse riding into battle like David. You see, the thing about David is David was the ideal king. For lack of a better word, or for lack of better words, he is the king of kings. He was the prototypical poster boy king. We might discuss who we think the best basketball player of all time or discuss the best author. Maybe you want to discuss the best president. Maybe you want to discuss the best movie. And we all can have our answers. But if you asked an Israelite in the first century who was the greatest king, the answer would be David. For no other title was given to a king than a man after God's own heart. The king in the kingdom was a big deal. That's why John and I have been teaching about the kingdom of God. And not only just because Jesus has been talking about it, but because of these expectations that they had, that the Lord's anointed would come and rule over them, and not over them, but the Messiah was to rule over all creation. This is what Psalm 110 is talking about. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at the right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, we will lift up his head. And this is a proper expectation. Because this is what Jesus will do when he comes. Again. This is what Israel has been waiting for since 2 Samuel 7, when God made a covenant with David that he will establish a throne forever for his seed. To understand this question that Jesus asked, we must understand the role that the king had in Israel. You see, once Israel received a king in 1 Samuel, that king acted as a representative for all the people. He was their head. He was the embodiment of Israel. How was Israel supposed to act? Look at the king. 
That's what Deuteronomy 17 says. When God, through Moses, promises them that once they get into the land, they will ask for a king. You know what he tells that king? Write the law in your house and read over it and fear the Lord. The prototypical Israel. Read through the Psalms. Hear how fond the psalmists are of the king. Do you know why they ask for the Lord to bless the king, as we read in our call to worship? Because if the Lord blesses the king, they too shall be blessed. The king is their representative. But more than that, the king is also God's representative to his people. He is the mediator of the covenant for them. Look at the call to worship, the very last line. Great salvation he brings to his king and showed steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring. When the Lord blesses David, his people are blessed. If their king receives salvation, so do the people. The king was anointed. This anointing implies a consecration to high office. Not only does it give this person a holy status, but it also allows this person to carry out the role to which they are called. So we return to Jesus' question. I just gave you an overview of the entire Old Testament. Jesus asks a question, or as some have stated, he poses a riddle. Everyone knew that David's son was going to be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, the Savior whom God had always promised to send, was an heir of David. But who was he? Jesus' question forces them to ask, ask us a question. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And he just leaves the question hanging. There's an awkward silence. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't give an answer here. We have to wait until chapter 22 to hear Jesus' answer as he stood before the council answering questions before they put him to death. Think of what Jesus did. He asked a question that made the scribes, made everyone who is listening, ponder, be introspective, self-examining. Who is the Christ? Who are we waiting for? How does Jesus fulfill our expectations? Are we like those in this story? No, we think Jesus, the Messiah, will only act in a certain way. What are our expectations of Jesus now? How do they stand next to what Jesus proclaimed? Do we see Jesus as our conquering hero who will swoop into our every need in a supernatural and powerful way? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. 
He can do this. But how does Jesus work in the midst of his people in ordinary ways? I believe Jesus, by the power of his spirit, meets with his people in quiet places. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. He meets us in the messiness of our lives. Think of the woman at the well. Where did Jesus meet her? Think of Peter and Andrew. They were fishing with their father. Jesus meets us when we gather together as the body of Christ because he has called us to himself. He nourishes us through the preaching and listening of God's word, through the ordinary means of grace. When the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus is meeting with us. When we observe the sacraments, Jesus is pledging his faithfulness to us. That he is with us to the end of the age. We are not alone. He is with us. Some of you know Jessica and my story. But right after Jessica gave birth to Joel, She suffered severely with postpartum depression. We'd never felt so alone in our lives. I'm a fix-it type of person. Tell me what's wrong, and I'll examine the situation, and I'll go in and fix it. For the first time in my life, I came home. Jessica was on the bed, and I sat next to her, and I said, the only thing I know what to do is to pray. I couldn't fix it. And I have to admit, after that experience, I became very angry because we felt so alone. As we began sharing this story with those at our church, woman after woman, couple after couple said, oh, yeah, we really struggled with that. And I looked at them. I said, why did you not prepare us? Why were the only things you told us in preparing to become parents for our first time was you're not going to get a lot of sleep? Why did you not share your burdens with us so that we could pray for you? Christ reminds us as we gather together each week that we need each other. We are to point one another to the promises and the faithfulness of Jesus. He is our perfect king. He has conquered our foe. He has already won the battle. We have hope in the gospel. And if we've become a faithful covenant member, he's become our God through the blood of Christ. And guess what? He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father all night. And he is faithful. 
he is with us in our depression. He is with us when we are anxious. He is with us when we lose a spouse. He's with us when we have to apologize to our parents again for not being honest with them. And we are so united to Christ that when we care for one another, we are actually fulfilling God's call for his people. We are redeeming his creation by the power of his spirit. Our king is redeeming us, his people, even as we confess our sins, our sexual immorality, what we covet, our our idolatry. This is where God meets us and moves us to forgiveness. This is where he mends the brokenhearted. This is where he dispenses his mercy when our sins are broken and covered. When we show the grace of God and the love of our God to the unlovable. Who is Jesus? He is our king. And he is coming on a great horse. This is why Jesus has come. This is why our king came, to liberate us, to redeem us. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. It's on page 910 of your pew Bible. And I'm going to read a pretty long section. My hope in reading this passage that it will give us an understanding of what Jesus is doing here as our king. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wondrous and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn his oath to him, that he would send one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, he has poured out 
this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repeat, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is what Christ did for us. This is who Jesus is, our Messiah. And it's interesting to think about. If you think about this Old Testament community, what did they do with the Psalms? They sang them. So each week, when the people would come and sing this psalm, they would be reminded of what God had promised them. And if they sang it faithfully, if they read it with great expectation, they would celebrate, as we celebrate this Easter, that Jesus has taken the Davidic kingship through the resurrection. He is not dead. He is alive. And just as Peter does here in Acts 2, just as Jesus here in Luke 20, what does he do? He makes us answer the question, who is Jesus? But he doesn't stop there. He turns to his disciples and makes them answer the question, who are we? Verses 45 to the beginning of chapter 21. Jesus tells them, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace, in the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses for the pretense and for the pretense of making long prayers. They will receive a great condemnation. You know, I didn't read one commentary that related this passage to Psalm 110. And I'm going to go out on a limb and try to make a connection. So take that for what it's worth. What do we just hear about David's Lord? He's going to be seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Do you think that's an honorable place to be sat? Psalm 110 is thought to be have sung at the coronation of kings. Read over Psalm 110 again. The king is wearing holy garments. These are the things that the Pharisees, that the scribes are desiring. The things that the king is supposed to receive. They were misleading the people. 
And the disciples listening to this had to ask themselves, are we acting as the Pharisees or are we acting as the followers of Jesus? What is the king supposed to do? Seek justice, love mercy, care for the widow and the orphan and for the sojourner. If Jesus is king, we must yield to his authority. And if Jesus is king, we must yearn for his desires to care for the widow, to give more than we give. The disciples of Christ should be about genuine service and caring for others. So I'm going to ask you the question, who are we in the story? Do we desire our own glory? Or do we desire to give the glory to our King? Our Lord desires mercy. He desires us to show mercy, for he has shown us mercy. Believe in Jesus. You are called to faith in this Christ. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other way to defeat the great enemy. You cannot do it. You need a king. And through the gospel, we have faith in Christ alone, and he redeems his people. Have hope in your struggles, Christ Presbyterian Church. For the Lord is at the right hand of God, and he has conquered his foes. We are who we are only because Jesus is who he is, and he is faithful, and his spirit is among us. And it's with great joy and even, don't laugh, eschatological hope, didn't work, that we are able to confess the Westminster Larger Catechism, as it's printed in your bulletin. Because Christ is reigning. How is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God, and that as a God-man, he is advanced in the highest favor with God the Father, with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth, and does gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnishes his ministries and people with gifts and graces to make intercession for them. This is the Christ. Father, you reign your grace upon us through Christ by the power of your Spirit. May we go forth and act as our king acts to seek justice and to love mercy. Amen.